The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters. Here are your top five at five. We begin with damage control at Credit Suisse over stock trades linked to the now infamous hedge fund Archegos Capital. And stay out of politics. McConnell's message to CEOs that are considering weighing in on the voting law debate that is sweeping the country. We have one branding expert weighing in. And Wall Street back at records after kind of a short break. But can investors make it a two for Tuesday? Pen up demand. What the CEO of one major cruise line told CNBC's own Jim Cramer about bookings this year and beyond. And Baylor making history at last night's men's championship for the NCAA basketball tournament. It is Tuesday, April the 6th, 2021. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning, wherever in the world you are. I am Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Kicking off your Tuesday morning with a look at the stock futures. And it appears, at least this time, we're set for kind of a muted open on Wall Street. Everything fractionally lower, but really basically flat. Now, the major averages coming off a record-breaking session yesterday. The Dow surging more than 350 points, hitting a new record high. The S&P also with another record close. While not at a record just yet, it's just 3.5% away. We're talking about the NASDAQ. It did climb more than 1% yesterday. Now, turning to the, the economies all around the world, stocks in Asia back open for trading after an extended holiday weekend, with the exception of Hong Kong. A mixed picture overnight. Europe, just getting its trading day started. Germany's DAX already hitting a record high. And we're going to continue to look at the global economy. Breaking news this morning in the wake of the Archegos Capital Management trading scandal. One major bank at the center of it all, Credit Suisse, announcing it's taking a massive loss over its role in this ongoing saga. Two executives also stepping down, effective immediately. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is in London with much, much more. Good morning, Juliana. Frank, good morning. So Credit Suisse shares have had a volatile start to trade, opening higher before sinking into the red, and now we are seeing them bounce above the flat line. This, as the bank says, losses related to Archegos Capital could cost as much as $4.7 billion. Now, in a major overhaul, the Swiss lender has axed its chief risk and compliance officer, Laura Warner, as well as the head of investment banking, Brian Chin, in the wake of the scandal. That's not all. Credit Suisse has also suspended its share buyback program, cut its dividend, and scrapped executive bonuses. And the question now for investors, Frank, is whether this is enough to draw a line in the sand after the string of issues that Credit Suisse Suisse has suffered over the last couple of years, Frank. So, Juliana, this is really just the latest in a string of woes for the bank. Can you put this latest black eye kind of in perspective? 
Absolutely, Frank. So Credit Suisse has been plagued by a string of risk issues. So let me walk you through them. Back in 2016, the bank agreed to pay almost $5.3 billion to the Department of Justice to resolve a case into mis-selling of mortgage securities. Among the most high-profile scandals was the one surrounding the hiring of a private investigation team to monitor a former executive that had moved to UBS. The fallout from that episode would eventually cost then-CEO TGNTM his job. Now, more recently, Credit Suisse acted as advisor to SoftBank when it made a 900 million euro investment into payments provider Wirecard months ahead of its collapse. The bank also took a $450 million impairment charge on its holding in a U.S. hedge fund, York Capital Management. So, as Frank, this is absolutely the latest in a string of issues for Credit Suisse. And as I mentioned right now, the question is whether what they have announced today is enough to set the bank on a better course moving forward and address the governance concerns that a lot of investors have. Well, Juliana, it's certainly enough to fill up that wall behind you. Probably not a good sign. Uh, question <laughs> to you. Uh, what do, how are investors looking in a more broad way at European banks? Any spillover from this Credit Suisse saga to other banks? Well, Frank, initially there was some concern when we were still waiting for details around the fallout from Archegos Capital. But uh, this morning we are seeing the European banking sector actually rally for the most part. Uh, we are seeing Credit Suisse underperform, which suggests that investors do view this as fairly idiosyncratic, these issues that Credit Suisse are facing. And we are seeing the European banking se sector march higher in large part on the back of the uh, strong moves that you guys saw on Wall Street yesterday. So, so far it seems to be being considered more of a Credit Suisse issue rather than a broader European banking sector issue. All right, Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London. London, we're going to continue to keep an eye on that story. Thank you. All right, turning our attention to Washington. And today, President Biden gets a bird's eye view of what it's like to get a COVID shot. Then he'll update the nation on where we are with everyone getting vaccinated. NBC's Tracy Potts is live in Washington. Good morning, Tracy. Hi, Frank. Good morning. So we're tracking this by the numbers. And the latest from the CDC is that 167 million shots have been given out. Nearly a third of the country has some degree of vaccination, much more for seniors. But there are concerns about where the numbers are growing. We know that long for dawn is almost here. President Biden offering hope that the pandemic will soon be over. Today, he tours a vaccine site in Virginia and provides an update on vaccinating America. The CDC is concerned about outbreaks in youth sports. Among 18 to 24 year olds, where we're seeing actually um, some peaks in, in cases. Nearly a quarter of American adults are now fully vaccinated and four in 10 have had at least one shot. But new cases are up. The government opens three new mass vaccination sites this week. We're now averaging three million shots a day. I saw on some program last week that Republican men, curiously enough, might be reluctant to take the vaccine. I'm a Republican man. I want to say to everyone, we need to take this vaccine. The concern, not just here in the U.S. This pandemic won't end at home until it ends worldwide. The State Department just named a new global coordinator for COVID response. There's concern about new versions of the virus, including a double mutant strain that first appeared in India, now in California. 
Meantime, we're seeing record travel. Schools and Broadway are reopening. Oh, yes, I have been waiting for this for over a year. And stadiums are coming back to life as America yearns for life back to normal. But even with this concern about a possible fourth wave, Frank, Dr. Anthony Fauci says we probably will not see another nationwide lockdown. All right, Tracy Potts with the very latest from Washington. We appreciate it. Turning our attention back to the markets with the Dow and the S&P hovering at new record highs on the back of that strong March jobs report and a rebound in the services sector. It appears investors, they have renewed hope of a robust economic recovery. For much more on this, I'm joined by Rob Morgan, Director of Market Strategy at Sethi Companies. Rob, thanks for being here. Hey, good morning, Frank. Thank you. So, Rob, I know you're, you're of the mind that the rising 10-year, going from one, the yield, going from 1.68 to 1.71 after that strong March jobs report, it has a lot of investors spooked about the Fed possibly tightening their monetary policy. So I got some questions for you. Um, is it the speed of those moves and the volatility of those moves that's heightening the fears? And how do you see the markets reacting and, and, and responding to the fact that when you look at the 10-year, the yields moved 100 points since March 24th, pretty volatile? Yeah, Frank. Well, I guess to, to answer the first part of your question, um, yeah, I think I think the, the the market is spooked by the possibility of the of the speed of of what the Fed may have to do. You know, it wasn't that long ago that that Fed Chair Powell was saying rates weren't going to go up until you know for three years. You know, the end of uh, when he when he made that announcement, the end of twenty twenty three. But uh, but recently he has started to to drop some hints. Not, not necessarily that the Fed is going to be raising rates anytime soon, but, uh, but, they're, but they're certainly going to have to, at some point, begin to ease back on the, on the bond purchasing program that, that, they've been, that they've had in place for, for some time now to, uh, to support the market. So I think that's, that's making the market somewhat nervous here. So, Rob, I've been asking everybody this question. Is there a number for the 10-year yield or a range that you think investors will feel good about but will not signal to the Fed that they need to tighten monetary policy? Do you have one in mind? Well, I mean, right now we're, we're at 1.71%. Uh, and uh, I, I, think that, I think that area is kind of a tipping point if we, if we – if we slipped a little bit below that, uh, that would make people that would make it, the investment community feel better. But if uh, we go much higher than that, then uh, then the jitters might continue. So, Rob, where do you see the best opportunity for investors in Q2? Where are you overweight? And do you have any stock names that you think people can kind of look at? Yeah, absolutely, Frank. I mean, from a from kind of a macro standpoint, um, you know, with with the Fed keeping rates low, uh, the dollar that should continue to uh, weigh down on the dollar. So large cap growth stocks in general, with multinationals that do well with a sagging dollar, would be kind of a broad area. And then to, to get a little more micro as as far as certain uh, sectors go that that I would like. And I and I and basically the sectors that I like or, uh, tend to have visible. Earnings growth, good good technicals, reasonable valuation, and right now those would be financials, uh, materials, and 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 telecom. Um, and then to answer the second part of your question, you know, some some stock picks. In this low rate environment, I think I think the dividend paying stocks, uh, particularly those that can grow their dividends, should should continue to look attractive. And uh, some names there that that look attractive uh, would include uh, IBM. 
Chevron and Dow. You know, IBM's got IBM and Chevron both have close to 4.9% yield. Dow's a little bit lower at uh, 4.3%. All right, Rob, we've got to wrap this up. But I see you're from Philly, my hometown, so I'm going to ask you a question. I need a one-word answer. Your pick on a cheesesteak place. <laughs> oh, got to go with Geno's. Geno's, you and Jim Kramer. You and Jim Kramer. I'm a DeLisandro's guy, <laughs> but we'll talk about it later. Uh, Rob Morgan from Seth Companies, good, we Frank. appreciate the insight as always. Thank you. All right, when we come Thank back you. to Worldwide Exchange, your morning stocks to watch, including the skyrocketing shares of one drug maker, Plus, the road to reopening. We talked to one Philadelphia restaurant tour about the steps that she's taking to not only keep her business afloat, but others as well. And later, MasterCard's chief economist is here with fresh data on where billions in online spending may be going in the post-pandemic world. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. Let's get a check on some of the other. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Big money movers today. We begin with GameStop. It continues its incredible roller coaster ride. Shares fell more than 10% as the video game retailer announced a new $1 billion stock offering. But retail traders, they rallied around this company again, buying as the price fell, pushing shares briefly into the green before they ended the day down about 2%. You see this morning they're down 2% as well. Now turning to Alphabet. They're going to stop using Oracle's financial software in the coming weeks in favor of rival SAP. CNBC has learned Alphabet and Google Core financial systems will move to SAP in May. Now, there is no indication the company is switching other systems from Oracle. The move also does not appear to be tied to that longstanding lawsuit between Google and Oracle over the use of Java and Android software. And Illumina is rallying this morning after the biotech says it expects first quarter revenue to top $1 billion. That's thanks to record orders and sales growth in its gene sequencing and related business. All right, still on deck here in Worldwide Exchange. Major League Baseball reportedly finding a new home for its all-star game after bailing on Georgia over its controversial new voting laws. Today's big number, $1.3 trillion. That was the total value of pending and completed deals during the first quarter, according to Refinitiv. That's an increase of 93% over the prior year and the second biggest quarter on record. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. All right, welcome back. As more restaurants across the country continue to expand their operations, one Philadelphia-based eatery owner is not only managing her own vegan-based chain, but she's also working to help the restaurant industry as a whole, including getting workers vaccinated. I'm now joined by Nicole Marquis, founder of both Hip City Veg and the Save Philly Restaurants Coalition. Nicole, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. So let's jump right into it. I know yesterday your coalition held a vaccination clinic. Um, can you tell us how many people showed up and why you're putting such a priority on vaccinating your workers when we're seeing there's a federal government effort to do that and in many cases a state level effort to do that? Yes, well, Safe Philly Restaurants Coalition has helped over a thousand restaurant workers in Philadelphia get vaccinated in partnership with Centennial Pharmacy. And we've been able to offer unlimited vaccine appointments to teams at hundreds of restaurants and really make it easy for them to get vaccinated. Right now, so many restaurant workers are still hesitant or confused about the process. It takes a lot of time to figure out where you're going to get vaccinated. So we're just making it super easy for them because it's so important right now. So I would imagine that your business is not quite the same as it was before the pandemic. Can you give us a sense of how deeply impacted your business was at the height of the pandemic and where is it at right about now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the last year has been the hardest of my professional life, and we've learned so much. When the shutdowns hit, we all went through a period of shock. It was really difficult for our employees. When sales dropped overnight by 75%, we had to furlough over 250 employees and then try to hire them back when the weather improved and then do layoffs again when cases surged in the winter. And now we're back to hiring again. So it's it's probably giving them whiplash. It's been difficult on the company, but we're really grateful that the core team was able to stay on and we've gotten so close and they've been very resilient. I'm really proud of them. And we're really grateful for the PPP loan that got us through and other programs that allowed us to pay our rent and part of our payroll. Uh, you know, right now we have to define success in the restaurant business these days as surviving. Fortunately, we had already invested in digital marketing and platforms. So we were able to continue our relationships with our customers, even though they were no longer going into the office. We had to meet them where they are, which was in their homes. Right. So, Nicole, obviously you think that vaccinating your workers are, are key is a key part of keeping your restaurant open. Uh, any thoughts about mandating vaccinations for your workers and also possibly mandating that people who come in your restaurant have vaccine passports? You know, widespread vaccination of restaurant workers is one of our top priorities at Save Philly Restaurant Coalition. It's really one of the keys to getting restaurants fully open and making sure staff and guests feel feel and stay safe. And it's been our priority since vaccines were approved. But it has been challenging for most industry workers to get vaccinated. Many of them are still confused, in part because getting appointments is so time consuming. Um, you know, so these clinics make it easier for our staff to get vaccinated more quickly and easily, which is really good for everybody. 
So circling back to your business, uh, I got some data from the Plant Boost Food, uh, Food Association. They say that plant-based food sales increased by about 29% last year. Obviously, your restaurant had some difficulties, restrictions, and was closed. Do you expect to see that translate into higher sales when we finally get to the recovery or get to mass vaccination? Do you think people will continue to eat vegan food and will they want to eat vegan food even more? Yeah, I think plant-based foods is the future. Uh, More and more people are looking to healthier options. We certainly still need the convenience of delivery or takeout or curbside pickup, but plant-based foods is definitely a trend that's here to stay. And you know, now that more people are getting vaccinated and COVID rates are going down, we foresee an upward trend in the coming months, barring some other disaster. You know, we're all going to need to work together to figure out how to bring people from the suburbs and tourists and more importantly, office workers back to Center City so we can fill our shops and fill our restaurants and streets again, which is essential for the city's economy and for plant-based restaurants in general. All right, Nicole, we got to let you go, but you're our second guest from Philly, my hometown. You got to pick a cheesesteak place, one word. What is it? A cheesesteak place, one word, Hip City Veg. But of course, you have Pat's and Geno's, which is the famous one here in Philly. I know you're a little biased. All right. Nicole Marquis, the CEO of Hip City Veg. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank All you right. so much. Let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Mena. He's in New York with the very latest. And Philip, you're from Texas. I'm not going to ask you about cheesesteaks. Yeah, barbecues and burritos. That's uh, my forte there. Uh, Frank, good morning. It was a remarkable day of testimony in the trial of Derek Chauvin. The star witness Monday was the chief of the Minneapolis Police Department, who says Chauvin's use of force violated policy. Also on the witness stand, a doctor who revealed George Floyd's death was due to lack of oxygen. Testimony will continue today. Now to that emergency situation still unfolding near Tampa, Florida. Hundreds of homes are still in danger of being flooded by toxic water after a containment wall was breached at this wastewater reservoir. The Florida National Guard airlifted in more pumps as crews raced to try to move that water into the Gulf of Mexico. And it was supposed to be a matchup for the ages. Undefeated Gonzaga taking on Baylor with a national championship and a perfect season on the line. But Baylor came out of the gates on fire, running up a double-digit lead to start the game. They shot over 40% from beyond the arc. Gonzaga did show some signs of life here and there, trying to will their way back in from a 10-point deficit at the half. But the Bears were just too much on Monday night. Baylor takes the title 86-70. to The Bears capture the first men's basketball national championship in school history. So, Frank, it would have been very memorable to witness an undefeated season, but it just it was not in the cards. Baylor was right. clearly the better team on Monday night. Yeah, that was a great game. I only watched the highlights, but the highlights were fantastic. You're a Texas guy. Were you actually rooting for Baylor? I was hoping Baylor won. You know, before that, Texas Western, now UTEP and El Paso, they were the only Texas team ever to win a men's championship before Monday night. So, And now there are two. Right. That was a movie, right? Glory Road? Great movie. It, yeah, it sure was. Great right. movie. Philip Mena, live in New York. We appreciate it. All right. All right. Still ahead, the very latest on the continued fallout over the Archegos hedge fund scandal and the massive hit. One of the key banks at the center of it all is now taking. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, just go ahead and do it. If you miss Worldwide Exchange or Brian Sullivan, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. And we will be right back. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. 
fresh fallout for Credit Suisse from the Archegos hedge fund scandal as two executives head for the exit and the bank takes a multi-billion dollar hit. Major League Baseball apparently finding a new home for its all-star game as corporate America tries to navigate the growing backlash over states' restrictive voting laws. And mapping out the e-commerce trends taking shape for the post-pandemic world, MasterCard's chief economist lays out where his team sees billions in on online dollars being spent. It is Tuesday, April the 6th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back. I'm Frank Holland in for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. Kicking off this second half hour with that breaking news surrounding one bank at the center of the Archegos capital management trading scandal. Credit Suisse following up on last week's warning, now saying it expects a first quarter pre-tax loss of more than $960 million after taking a charge of $4.7 billion as a result of this scandal. Also this morning, investment bank CEO Brian Chin and Chief Risk and Compliance Officer Laura Warner will step down from their roles effective immediately. The bank also proposing a massive dividend cut. Joining me now, Owen Walker, European banking correspondent for the Financial Times. Owen, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Frank. So, Owen, I think the big question here is what are these departures and what does this charge mean for Credit Suisse today and then going forward? Well, this is just the latest scandal affecting Credit Suisse going back several years, really, but certainly in the past year. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's something that uh, it, the, the bank just really can't shake off. Um, it's announced you know, these, these big de- uh, executive departures today. There's also been a slew of more mid-level managers who are, who are departing. Um, as you mentioned, there's a, a huge dividend cut. It's, it's halting its buyback program. Uh, and, uh, you know, the shares are down 25% in the last month. It's, it's, they're hoping these dramatic moves are really going to sort of end this period for the, for the bank. But, um, you know, history tells us that it could just be another scandal waiting around the corner. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are multiple corners and multiple scandals for Credit Suisse, at least in res- recent years. Uh, one of our colleagues just had a wall kind of showing the timeline. The wall was full, Owen. The wall was full. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, when we look at these departures, these two people were actually just told last year by the CEO to kind of overhaul this group and change things after some of these other scandals. So if you just overhauled, how do you overhaul again and fix the problem? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Thomas Gottstein, the CEO who, who uh, came in place just over a year ago, and I'm sure your viewers may remember the circumstances he joined. There was a very ugly corporate spying scandal where his predecessor, Tijan Tiam, left. Uh, Thomas Gottstein came in, supposed to be a kind of a safe pair of hands, a um, bit of a lifer at Credit Suisse. Uh, and that summer, last summer, he he brought in an overhaul. He actually uh, gave uh, Lara Warner and Brian Chin bigger roles. He uh, he gave them more responsibility, um, combining risk and compliance on Warner's side and, and making uh, Brian Chin the overall head of the investment bank. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, within just over sort of six, seven months later, those two are the, the four people for, for this latest scandal. Um, as you say, how do you, do you sort of keep restructuring this? There are, there are kind of inherent problems within the bank. And clearly that last uh, set of reforms, that last revamp, either hasn't worked or it hasn't worked yet. So, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure on Thomas Gottstein to see what he does next. So when we're looking at a, a chart of Credit Suisse shares right now. They're actually up about a half a percent. Um, Going forward, how does this impact Credit Suisse, the perception of its prime service, and how does this impact other European banks? 
Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, uh, as you say, up, up slightly today, I think there was a lot of expectation there could have been a bigger hit, but also uh, it, it shows the the actual investment bank has done very well this year. So, um, you know, maybe uh, you know, I'm hearing from people inside the, the bank that actually they're seeing this as something they can maybe uh, shake off. It's it's a big deal. They're very embarrassed and very upset about it. They're looking to shake it off and, and maybe progress into to the rest of the year on the back of maybe some some stronger results. Um, in terms of their prime brokerage business, uh, we've seen an internal mail where several uh, senior people there have have, uh, have left and been replaced. Uh, I think it sets a lot of question marks about that business within the investment bank. It's a, it's a niche industry, uh, you know, serving hedge funds and other kind of investors doing their kind of their equities business for them. Uh, and Credit Suisse weren't the only bank to get stung by Archegos. There are, you know, several Wall Street banks, several big uh, Asian, Japanese, uh, Hong Kong banks who have been really, really hit by this. And I think a lot of them will be looking at their prime brokerage businesses and thinking, is this a business we want to be in? Or are there maybe some, some more risk controls we need to be putting in around that to, to safeguard a little bit. You know, Owen, you're taking some words right out of my mouth. We just showed Nomura shares down about 17% since this scandal broke out. Anything else coming up for them? How do you see their business being impacted? Well, Nomura is a funny one because this is a, a, a big deal for Nomura. Uh, that this isn't a, the, the sort of the story you would typically associate them being involved in a you know a sort of a high-profile international global sc- scandal. For them, you know, certainly in, in Japan, this has gone down very badly. Our colleagues over there have been sort of very close to the action there, and um, it, it it just seems I think that they've been scorched. You know, for Credit Suisse, this is undoubtedly a big a big deal, but it's one of of several, uh, you know, some of the Wall Street banks who are involved in this, they've, they've kind of been down this path before. For someone like Nomura, this is something that, that is going to take a, a big recovery from um, because this isn't, this isn't sort of the day-to-day activity for them. Owen, we've got to let you go. But one quick question, just a yes or no, if you wouldn't mind. Um, do you see CEO Thomas Godstein surviving this scandal after all the other scandals that this bank has had in recent years? In one word, yes. But uh, will he survive the next one? Uh, who knows? All right. Owen Walker, you got the last word there. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. All Thanks right. so much, Frank. Turning our attention back to the market, stock futures searching for direction after a record-breaking day on Wall Street yesterday. That saw the Dow and the S&P both hit fresh record highs. Futures now uh, pretty much muted, looking for a very quiet open to Wall Street after that record-breaking day yesterday. Now turning to some of the morning's other top stories. Automakers reportedly want some of the aid approved by Congress to address the ongoing global semiconductor shortage to be set aside specifically for chips for vehicles. Now, this is according to Bloomberg, the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which represents vehicle makers, including Ford, General Motors and Toyota, is floating this idea to lawmakers. The report says the Auto Alliance is projecting that the semi shortage will result in nearly 1.3 million fewer vehicles being produced this year as plants halt production while awaiting new chip shipments. Norwegian Cruise Line CEO is giving a very optimistic outlook for his company setting sail once again. Speaking with Jim Cramer on Mad Money last night, Frank Del Rio pegged summertime for the return of his company's cruise ships. Yesterday, Norwegian sent a proposal to the CDC on how those ships could travel once again. Del Rio was even more hopeful about next year's outlook. We are better booked for 2022 at this point in the booking cycle than we've ever been in our in our history, including the record year of 2019. Pent-up demand is real in the cruise space. If the CDC lets me cruise July 4th, it'll have been nearly 17 months, 17 months since we uh, operated. 
And Major League Baseball has reportedly picked a new site for this year's All-Star Game. Sources tell ESPN the game will be played at Coors Field in Denver. The potential move comes after MLB decided to move the game out of Atlanta due to voting laws passed in Georgia last month. Civil rights groups have argued that the law will potentially restrict voting access for people of color. All right, sticking with that national debate surrounding the situation in Georgia, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell weighing in with some very strong words for CEOs who decide to speak out on this issue. I found it completely discouraging to find a bunch of corporate CEOs uh, getting in the middle of politics. My advice to the corporate CEOs of America is to stay out of politics. Don't pick sides in these big fights. And McConnell adding corporations will invite serious consequences if they become a vehicle for far left mobs to hijack our country from outside the constitutional order. Joining me now is Yvonne Hutchinson, the founder and CEO of Ready Set. That's a consulting firm focusing on issues of diversity and inclusion. In the past, she's worked with companies like Salesforce, Amazon, Airbnb and Adobe. Yvonne, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. So this is divisive. This is certainly controversial. Uh, over the past few weeks, companies like Delta, Coca-Cola, J.P. Morgan, uh, they've come out against the Georgia voting law. Kind of a, a mixed reaction when you look at their stocks over this time, but certainly a hot button issue. Um, is there an impact positively or negatively for these companies speaking out outside of their stock price? Well, I mean, I think they absolutely have to to speak out. Um, you know, more and more we're seeing companies, corporations increase in power, whether that's economic power, social power, cultural power. And people both inside of these companies and outside of these companies are really looking for them to lead on the issues, right, um, and leverage that power uh, for good. So I definitely think there's some benefit. I also think there's a right way and a wrong way to, to, to make some of these statements. And it's really important that companies aren't just pushing out some kind of marketing statement, but, but making strong, decisive statements and following those up with action. So, Yvonne, interesting point you're making there. So in recent months, we saw the Business Roundtable come out with a new statement on the purchase of a corporation. And part of it was they should support the communities that they're in. Now, again, this is very divisive. There's some people who are for it. There's some people who are against it. How do you support the community when something's this divisive? What is the right way? Well, you know, I think... Um you know, organizations need to first remember their values, right? I, I, you know, I think that, yes, voting rights are a hot button issue, but, you know, we live in a democracy and, um, you know, democratic bed ideals are at the bedrock of that. So I think that's really important. I also think organizations are starting to realize that when they sit in communities where they're not um, being additive, where they're, uh, you know, um, having harm, you know, those communities become less stable. People uh, become less likely to buy their products. People are less likely to want to work for them. And we're starting to see higher expectations from business. You know, we want them to lead morally, uh, just as they do financially. Um, and we want to make sure that businesses aren't harming communities along the way. So, Yvonne, I'm going to put you on the spot. You work with some big name companies like Salesforce, like Amazon, like Airbnb. If you were speaking to the CEOs, uh, CEO of one of these companies involved in this controversy and you had to give them a playbook, what would be step one? Um, step one is be honest with yourself. So uh, if you, for example, are, are an organization that's recently had some controversy, um, you know, know that, own that. People are going to be critical when they see your statement, right? We live in the age of social media. So whatever you say will be uh, dissected, 
pull apart and put up against your actions. Um, when you do make a statement, however, and I think most uh, most companies should, uh, particularly if they're prepared to follow it by action, make sure that you're saying something that's clear. I don't I don't think you can both sides democracy, right? You're either forward or or against it, right? So really come out decisively uh, around you know your support for voting rights access, um, your opposition to this bill, and I think you have to say words like race. You have to say words like civil rights. You have to say the names of the states that are enacting some of this legislation. And sadly, you know, we've seen bills introduced across 47 states. So I think taking a strong stance is important. But like I said before, you can't stop there. I think organizations need to commit to action. Again, consumers are really savvy right now. So they'll see these statements, you know, post them on Twitter or whatever. And if they don't see action, they're going to see it as marketing. And um, more and more, there's an increased likelihood that you're going to get pushback. You know, you can just look at what happened to some companies during the Black Lives Matter movement. Companies put out these statements, didn't follow up with action or had a history of anti-Blackness in their organizations, and they were held to account. And I think the same holds true um, here. So again, you know, I would say be honest with yourself about where you're at, take a strong, decisive stance, and be prepared to follow that up with action and be specific about what that action is. All right, Yvonne, we appreciate the insight. I'm sure it's going to be a busy couple weeks for you as companies give calls. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, MasterCard's chief economist is standing by with the new data from his team on the spending trends that are taking shape post-pandemic. Worldwide Exchange, we're back in a moment. All right. We all know e-commerce is booming during the pandemic, but a key question for every industry is how much of those dollars will continue to be spent online after COVID-19? A new report from the MasterCard Economics Institute, given first to CNBC, estimates in 2020 the pandemic generated an additional $900 billion in online sales globally. Here in the U.S., during the peak of the pandemic, online buying it doubled from 11 percent of shopping to 22 percent of all shopping. MasterCard forecasts that number will shift to 17 percent of all sales after the recovery. And while we all may believe that the digital economy is just here to stay, it appears some people will return to retailers as part of the recovery. Online electronic sales, they surged during the pandemic as we all bought new laptops, some of us ring lights and much more. But MasterCard estimates that only a small percentage increase is that's all we're going to see when we reach the new normal. And then no change for online hardware sales, despite record sales for home improvement retailers in recent quarters. For much more on this report, let's bring in Bricklin Dwyer, chief economist for the MasterCard Economics Institute. Hey there, Bricklin. Hey, Frank. How are you? All right. Great stuff in this report. Really interesting. First question I have to ask you, that $900 billion in additional online sales in 2020, how much of it do you see remaining online, that spending remaining in e-commerce as we go to 2021, the recovery and beyond? So $900 billion, it's a, it's a pretty staggering number for, for most people. Uh, $900 billion of additional spending that MasterCard Economics Institute estimates uh, that about 20 to 30 percent of that will stick around for 2021 and beyond. Um, that really is a big number. To put that in perspective, in 2020, uh, we saw about one in every five retail dollars being spent online. That really is a big number. And that talks to, uh, you know, the significant shift we saw, not just from consumers spending more online, but a lot of capabilities of businesses shifting online. It wasn't universal. Universal around the world, we saw the early digital adopters benefiting early on, and then we saw the later uh, digital adopters benefiting a bit more protracted. So it varied by sector, but that really is the big picture. 
All right. We talk a lot about digital transformation here on CNBC. You could probably do a drinking game with the amount of times that we talk about it. Um, During the peak pandemic, online sales in our country doubling. But when you look at your expectations for different sectors, many of them are going to kind of go back to normal after we get to this recovery or post-pandemic, the new normal, whatever you want to call it. Where are these people going? Are they just going back to the stores or are they just not buying as much? Well, it depends on the sector you're looking at. We, we saw the uh, the shift that really was an acceleration of pre-crisis trends early on. So places like hardware, electronics, uh, things that people were already shopping a lot online, uh, that is expected to continue. And so we're seeing close to 50% of total sales being spent online in those sectors. And then we look at other sectors, places like grocery, which are kind of new to the online sphere in terms of overall spending. Uh, we only see about 10% of, uh, of spending being spent uh, in, in grocery online. And so when we think about that, that really is the big hurdle. There's a couple of hurdles here. One is you have to have trust. You have to trust someone else to pick your peaches. You have to have trust for someone else to deliver your goods and still have them uh, good when they arrive. So that really is some of those so some of those barriers that we're crossing. But it didn't just stop there. We saw that expansion in sectors, and we also saw that expansion in marketplaces, the number of places that people were buying online, and we also saw it in the number of countries that people were buying retail goods from from abroad. And so that expansion really speaks to just how much e-commerce grew around the world. Let's talk a little bit more about that expansion here in the U.S. especially. Your report shows that Americans shopped at 13 percent more stores, different stores during the pandemic. Is that money now going to smaller or medium-sized businesses? Is this people trying to diversify where they buy from? What's creating this shift? So we definitely saw a much greater awareness of where people were shopping. Um, That drove a lot of the spending into small businesses, people trying to support their small business communities. But small businesses themselves had to have a bit of a survival instinct here um, where they needed to digitize to survive. And so our, our test and learn analysis, which looked at small businesses, uh, that were 500K and lower in the United States, saw about a 6% increase in sales for small businesses that went online during the pandemic versus those that didn't. So it clearly is benefiting not just the big players, but also the small players that shifted online and trying to take advantage of that marketplace. All right, Brickland Dwyer from the MasterCard Economics Institute. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, markets look to make it a two in a row with the Dow and the S&P fighting to hold on to those fresh records. Atomic Wealth's Mark Avalone lays out the stocks he's finding opportunity in. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, seriously, we talk about it every show. Let's go ahead and do it. There's a big popper right there. Go ahead. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And last but certainly not least, April is Financial Literacy Month. CNBC is committed to sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here is Truco Technology Chairman and CEO, Saul Trujillo. Math is at the center of financial literacy. I love baseball. I used to keep track of all the players and their batting averages and RBIs and all kinds of statistics because I did the math. I had to learn it. I did it manually. So that was very important in terms of the relevance to me in my business career because I've learned how to do things and process things quicker in my mind so that when you're in a meeting, you can apply it. All right, welcome back. Futures pulling back just a bit after the Dow and the S&P hit fresh record highs as strong economic data boost investors' hopes of a smoother recovery. For much more on this, I'm joined by Mark Avalon, president of Potomac. 
Potomac? Yeah, Potomac. Wealth Advisors. Mark, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. So, uh, I, you know, I got one of your notes, and I like how bold you are. You're saying there is no alternative. Equities are just it. The question is, for a lot of people, whether it's growth or value, do you see that it being a, a, you know, a one-sided issue? You've got to pick growth or value. Is there a middle ground that people can play? Well, in a way, it is a bit unfortunate that this there is no alternatives to stocks because a lot of investors who otherwise wouldn't want to take on that risk appetite would remain in the bond market. But with pressure on rates and, and rates at a very low level, we're left with investing in stocks. In terms of where to allocate, we think the growth versus value discussion has run its course and, in fact, been a little off base in that they're lumping all tech companies as these growth stocks that cannot do well in a rising rate environment. We don't think that's true, especially with rates at these relatively low levels. A lot of tech companies are flush with cash. They're strong cash flows. They're in very traditional businesses by 2021 terms. We don't think they should get lumped into with emerging technology companies that don't have visibility for earnings. And that's where we're focusing right now. In fact, with the recent flatlining of the or triple Qs or the widening of the gap between big tech and traditional value plays, we think there are some values in large cap growth, large cap tech names. All right, Mark. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're batting cleanup here in Worldwide Exchange. We're going to have to ask you for some stock names. Can you give us some stocks that kind of fit that profile in your mind? Well, and we've seen recent positive move, moves in Microsoft and, and Oracle and, and Alphabet's at an all-time high. Facebook's been on a great run. Look, Alphabet and Facebook are, are advertising companies to a large extent. And with the reopening, this is where the travel ads that disappeared for from Google last year, they're all going to come back, and they're coming back strong. Uh, Facebook, despite its regulatory problems, it, it seems to know how and where to connect with small businesses that are bursting to reconnect with their customers. So those are two names we like. We also think that Apple is well positioned with younger generation for generations to come and to look at interim drops in Apple stock price is a mistake because ecosystems and lifestyles are becoming intertwined more each day as younger people adopt Apple's technology. Yeah, a lot of people on their iPhones uh, when you go pretty much anywhere, Mark. Um, I know a lot of people are watching the yield on the 10-year. It's down slightly today, still above 1.7. But you're actually watching the yield curve. Kind of explain that. And and what are you seeing there that you think is a signal to investors and maybe even the Fed? Well, what the yield curve is doing right now, it's not only raising up rates, it's also widening the gap between longer dated and shorter dated maturities. And that helps bank profits. That's an immediate hit to their operating profit margins. And this is why we like financials. This is going to be almost free money for banks doing the exact same thing they've been doing, but now their profit margin grows up. That's a great business to be in. We also think that the improvement in credit quality gives bank earnings more visibility. And in an overbanked world, that is gonna lead to more bank mergers. People are gonna need to link up They want to reduce the cost of overhead, the cost of branches. They call them stores. They want to reduce the cost of technology. And by doing that, they're going to marry up and merge. And that's going to bring an equity premium to the market. It's going to give us multiple expansions and multiple expansion while profits are rising. Mark, thanks for the insight. we got to play you off. I apologize. Great stuff, though, as always. We appreciate you being here. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is up next. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.